Chapter fifty three, part two of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, volume five. Chapter fifty three. FATE OF THE EASTERN EMPIRE, PART Two. I must repeat the complaint, that the vague and scanty memorials of the times will not afford any just estimate of the taxes, the revenue, and the resources of the Greek Empire. From every province of Asia and Europe, the rivulets of gold and silver discharged into the imperial reservoir, a copious and perennial stream. The separation of the branches from the trunk increased the relative magnitude of Constantinople, and the maxims of despotism contracted the state to the capital, the capital to the palace, and the palace to the royal person. A Jewish traveller, who visited the East in the twelfth century, is lost in his admiration of the Byzantine riches. It is here, says Benjamin of Tadila, in the Queen of Cities, that the tributes of the Greek Empire are annually deposited, and the lofty towers are filled with precious magazines of silk, purple, and gold. It is said that Constantinople pays each day to her sovereign twenty thousand pieces of gold, which are levied on the shops, taverns, and markets, on the merchants of Persia and Egypt, of Russia and Hungary, of Italy and Spain, who frequent the capital by sea and land. In all pecuniary matters, the authority of a Jew is doubtless respectable. But, as the 365 days would produce an yearly income exceeding seven million sterling, I am tempted to retrench at least the numerous festivals of the Greek calendar. The mass of treasure that was saved by Theodora and Basil II will suggest a splendid, though indefinite, idea of their supplies and resources. The mother of Michael, before she retired to a cloister, attempted to check or expose the prodigality of her ungrateful son by a free and faithful account of the wealth which he inherited, one hundred and nine thousand pounds of gold and three hundred thousand of silver, the fruits of her own economy and that of her deceased husband. The avarice of Basil is not less renowned than his valour and fortune. His victorious armies were paid and rewarded without breaking into the mass of two hundred thousand pounds of gold, about eight million sterling, which he had buried in the subterraneous vaults of the palace. Such accumulation of treasure is rejected by the theory and practice of modern policy, and we are more apt to compute the national riches by the use and abuse of the public credit. Yet the maxims of antiquity are still embraced by a monarch formidable to his enemies by a republic respectable to her allies, and both have attained their respective ends of military power and domestic tranquillity. Whatever might be consumed for the present wants, or reserved for the future use of the state, the first and most sacred demand was for the pomp and pleasure of the emperor, and his discretion only could define the measure of his private expense. The princes of Constantinople were far removed from the simplicity of nature, Yet, with the revolving seasons, they were led by taste or fashion to withdraw to a purer air 
from the smoke and tumult of the capital. They enjoyed, or affected to enjoy, the rustic festival of the vintage. Their leisure was amused by the exercise of the chase, and the calmer occupation of fishing. And in the summer heats, they were shielded from the sun, and refreshed by the cooling breezes from the sea. The coasts and islands of Asia and Europe were covered with their magnificent villas. But, instead of the modest art which secretly strives to hide itself, and to decorate the scenery of nature, the marble structure of their gardens served only to expose the riches of the lord, and the labours of the architect. The successive casualties of inheritance and forfeiture had rendered the sovereign proprietor of many stately houses in the city and suburbs, of which twelve were appropriated to the ministers of state. But the great palace, the centre of the imperial residence, was fixed during eleven centuries to the same position, between the Hippodrome, the Cathedral of St. Sophia, and the gardens, which descended by many a terrace to the shores of the Propontis. The primitive edifice of the first Constantine was a copy or rival of ancient Rome. The gradual improvements of his successors aspired to emulate the wonders of the old world, and in the tenth century the Byzantine palace excited the admiration at least of the Latins, by an unquestionable pre-eminence of strength, size, and magnificence. But the toil and treasure of so many ages had produced a vast and irregular pile. Each separate building was marked with the character of the times and of the founder, and the want of space might excuse the reigning monarch, who demolished, perhaps with secret satisfaction, the works of his predecessors. The economy of the Emperor Theophilus allowed a more free and ample scope for his domestic luxury and splendour. A favourite ambassador, who had astonished the Abbasides themselves by his pride and liberality, presented on his return the model of a palace, which the Caliph of Baghdad had recently constructed on the banks of the Tigris. The model was instantly copied and surpassed. The new buildings of Theophilus were accompanied with gardens, and with five churches one of which was conspicuous for size and beauty. It was crowned with three domes, the roof of gilt brass reposed on columns of Italian marble, and the walls were encrusted with marbles of various colours. In the face of the church, a semicircular portico, of the figure and name of the Greek sigma, was supported by fifteen columns of Phrygian marble, and the subterraneous vaults were of a similar construction. The square before the sigma was decorated with a fountain, and the margin of the basin was lined and encompassed with plates of silver. In the beginning of each season, the basin, instead of water, was replenished with the most exquisite fruits, which were abandoned to the populace for the entertainment of the prince. He enjoyed this tumultuous spectacle from a throne resplendent with gold and gems, which was raised by a marble staircase to the height of a lofty terrace. Below the throne were seated the officers of his guard, the magistrates, the chiefs of the factions of the circus, the inferior steps were occupied by the people, and the place below was covered with troops of dancers, singers, and pantomimes. The square was surrounded by the hall of justice, the arsenal, and the various offices of business and pleasure, and the purple chamber was named from the annual distribution of robes of scarlet and purple, by the hand of the empress herself.
the long series of the apartments was adapted to the seasons, and decorated with marble and porphyry, with paintings, sculpture, and mosaics, with the profusion of gold, silver, and precious stones. His fanciful magnificence employed the skill and patience of such artists as the times could afford. But the taste of Athens would have despised their frivolous and costly labours. A golden tree, with its leaves and branches, which sheltered a multitude of birds warbling their artificial notes, and two lions of massy gold, and of natural size, who looked and roared like their brethren of the forest. The successors of Theophilus, of the Basilian and Comnenian dynasties, were not less ambitious of leaving some memorial of their residence, and the portion of the palace most splendid and august was dignified with the title of the Golden Triclium. With becoming modesty, the rich and noble Greeks aspired to imitate their sovereign, and when they passed through the streets on horseback, in their robes of silk and embroidery, they were mistaken by the children for kings. A matron of Peloponnesus, who had cherished the infant fortunes of Basil the Macedonian, was excited by tenderness or vanity to visit the greatness of her adopted son. In a journey of five hundred miles from Patras to Constantinople, her age or indolence declined the fatigue of a horse or carriage. The soft litter or bed of Danielis was transported on the shoulder of ten robust slaves, and as they were relieved at easy distances, a band of three hundred was selected for the performance of this service. She was entertained in the Byzantine palace with filial reverence, and the honours of a queen. And, whatever might be the origin of her wealth, her gifts were not unworthy of the regal dignity. I have already described the fine and curious manufacturers of Peloponnesus, of linen, silk, and woollen, but the most acceptable of her presents consisted in three hundred beautiful youths, of whom one hundred were eunuchs, for she was not ignorant, says the historian, that the air of the palace is more congenial to such insects than a shepherd's dairy to the flies of the summer. During her lifetime she bestowed the greater part of her estates in Peloponnesus, and her testament insulted Leo, the son of Basil, her universal heir. After the payment of the legacies, fourscore villas or farms were added to the imperial domain, and three thousand slaves of Danielis were enfranchised by their new lord, and transported as a colony to the Italian coast. From this example of a private matron, we may estimate the wealth and magnificence of the emperors. Yet our enjoyments are confined by a narrow circle, and, whatsoever may be its value, the luxury of life is possessed with more innocence and safety by the master of his own house than by the steward of the public fortune. In an absolute government, which levels the distinction of noble and plebeian birth, the sovereign is the sole fountain of honour, and the rank, both in the palace and the empire, depends on the titles and offices which are bestowed and resumed by his arbitrary will. Above a thousand years, from Vespasian to Alexis Comnenus, the Caesar was the second person, or at least the second degree, after the supreme title of Augustus was more freely communicated to the sons and brothers of the reigning monarch. 
to elude, without violating his promise to a powerful associate, the husband of his sister, and, without giving himself an equal, to reward the piety of his brother Isaac, the crafty Alexis interposed a new and supreme eminent dignity. The happy flexibility of the Greek tongue allowed him to compound the name of Augustus and Emperor, Sebestus, and Autocrator, and the union produces the sonorous title of Sebastocrator. He was exalted above the Caesar on the first step of the throne. The public acclamations repeated his name, and he was only distinguished from the sovereign by some peculiar ornaments of the head and feet. The emperor alone could assume the purple or red buskins, and the close diadem or tiara, which imitated the fashion of the Persian kings. It was a high pyramidal cap of cloth or silk, almost concealed by a profusion of pearls and jewels. The crown was formed by a horizontal circle and two arches of gold. At the summit, the point of their intersection, was placed a globe or cross, and two strings or lappets of pearl depended on either cheek. Instead of red, the buskins of the Sebastocrator and Caesar were green, and on their open coronets or crowns, the precious gems were more sparingly distributed. Beside and below the Caesar, the fancy of Alexis created the Panhypersebastos, and the Protosebastos, whose sound and signification will satisfy a Grecian ear. They imply a superiority and a priority above the simple name of Augustus, and this sacred and primitive title of the Roman prince was degraded to the kinsmen and servants of the Byzantine court. The daughter of Alexis applauds, with fond complacency, this artful gradation of hopes and honours. But the science of words is accessible to the meanest capacity, and this vain dictionary was easily enriched by the pride of his successors. To their favourite sons or brothers, they imparted the more lofty appellation of lord or despot, which was illustrated with new ornaments and prerogatives, and placed immediately after the person of the emperor himself. The five titles of 1. Despot 2. Sebastocrator 3. Caesar 4. Panhypersebastus and 5. Protosebastus were usually confined to the princes of his blood. They were the emanations of his majesty, but as they exercised no regal functions, their existence was useless, and their authority precarious. But in every monarchy the substantial powers of government must be divided and exercised by the ministers of the palace and treasury, the fleet and army. The titles alone can differ, and in the revolution of ages, the counts and prefects, the praetor and quaestor, insensibly descended, while their servants rose above their heads to the first honours of the state. 1. In a monarchy, which refers every object to the person of the prince, the care and ceremonies of the palace form the most respectable department. The cura palate, so illustrious in the age of Justinian, was supplanted by the protovestere, whose primitive functions were limited to the custody of the wardrobe, from thence his jurisdiction was extended over the numerous menials of pomp and luxury, and he presided with a silver wand at the public and private audience. 
Two, in the ancient system of Constantine, the name of Logothate, or accountant, was applied to the receivers of the finances. The principal officers were distinguished as the Logothates of the domain, of the posts, the army, the private and public treasure. And the great Logothate, the supreme guardian of the laws and revenues, is compared with the chancellor of the Latin monarchies. His discerning eye pervaded the civil administration, and he was assisted, in due subordination, by the eparch or prefect of the city, the first secretary, and the keepers of the privy seal, the archives, and the red or purple ink, which was reserved for the sacred signature of the emperor alone, the introductor and interpreter of foreign ambassadors, were the great Chaucis and the Dragoman, two names of Turkish origin, and which are still familiar to the sublime port. 3. From the humble style and service of the guards, the domestics insensibly rose to the station of generals. The military themes of the East and West, the legion of Europe and Asia, were often divided, till the great domestic was finally invested with the universal and absolute command of the land forces. The protostrata, in his original functions, was the assistant of the emperor when he mounted on horseback. He gradually became the lieutenant of the great domestic in the field, and his jurisdiction extended over the stables, the cavalry, and the royal train of hunting and hawking. The stratopedarch was the great judge of the camp. The protospathir commanded the guards. The constable, the great atriarch, and the acolyth were the separate chiefs of the Franks, the barbarians, and the varangi, or English, the mercenary strangers who, at the decay of the national spirit, formed the nerve of the Byzantine armies. 4. The naval powers were under the command of the great duke. In his absence they obeyed the great drangere of the fleet, and in his place the emir or admiral, a name of Saracen extraction but which has been naturalized in all the modern languages of Europe. Of these officers, and of many more whom it would be useless to enumerate, the civil and military hierarchy was framed. Their honours and emoluments, their dress and titles, their mutual salutations and respective preeminence, were balanced with more exquisite labour than would have fixed the constitution of a free people. And the code was almost perfect, when this baseless fabric, the monument of pride and servitude was forever burned in the ruins of the empire. End of chapter fifty three, part two.